Well, hello there and happy Thursday or whatever day of the week it happens to be that you're watching or listening to this. Uh, this is the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint live series. My name is Guy Stevens. Uh, I'm the founder and executive director of the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. If you're not familiar with the Alliance, we're an organization that started really to look at a lot of the uh, punitive things that were being done to kids in schools, restraint, seclusion, suspension, expulsion, uh, corporal punishment, uh, often things that are being done in the name of behavior, often being done to uh, disabled children, black and brown children, children with a trauma history. Uh, we've kind of set out on a mission to try to influence changes in not only laws and policies, but the way that children are supported in schools across the country and beyond. Uh, always really excited to say we've got an international audience. And uh, I hope you will keep me an honest person here today and tell me who you are and where you're from. And I look to see some of our friends from across the globe. Uh, but please, in the chat, uh, tell us who you are, where you're from, and uh, would love to, to know who you are watching today. Uh, as always, I am really excited uh, to have our guest today. Uh, I was just because we were getting ready to go on, you know, talking to our guests and saying how excited I was. And, and I really mean that it, it's such a pleasure to talk to all the amazing people that we talk to uh, and have the opportunity to share them with all of you uh, in a hope that we're able to make some positive change. So today I'm very excited to have McAllister Griner Hun joining us uh, for a special discussion. We're going to be having kind of a uh, interview discussion, uh, hopefully uh, learning a lot. McAllister, of course, is the educator behind the neurodivergent teacher. So I'm sure as I say that, you're like, ah, okay, neurodivergent teacher, uh, probably have seen some of the amazing work that McAllister's done, uh, probably seen some of the uh, videos that uh, have been out there and uh, really great stuff. So um, as always, I wanna remind you that our session is being recorded. And as always, it's available after the fact on Facebook, YouTube, and LinkedIn. We also make an audio-only podcast version available that you can listen to on iTunes, Spotify, any of your favorite podcast uh, software. So with all that, let's get to the good stuff. I'm so excited today. Uh, let me introduce our guest, and I'm going to bring up McAllister here and give a, a little bit of a background here. Uh, so McAllister is a National Board Certified Special Educator behavioral support specialist, consultant, international speaker, who calls North Carolina USA home. Uh, that's not too terribly far from here. And a place that we frequently travel through is where uh, we've got family in Florida. So we, we go through North Carolina a lot, usually good traffic in North Carolina. Um, she's been working with and learning from neurodivergent individuals professionally uh, for 12 years, steadily growing her passion for neurodiversity, disability, culture, uh, and Radical Acceptance. McAllister is the educator behind the Neurodivergent Teacher uh, on Facebook and Instagram, where she connects with families, professionals, and neurodivergent folks worldwide to share philosophies around teaching, self-advocacy, accessibility, coping strategies. Uh, and if you're like me and, and follow uh, McAllister on any of these platforms, uh, there are just, you know, these moments of brilliance that come across and you're like, ah, that's, that's it. Uh, so it's always great, McAllister, to welcome someone that is doing this work, doing this work that um, I really believe is making a difference in the lives of, of many kids and many adults. Um, so it's such a pleasure to have you here with us today. Great to be here. Um, so we're going to have a conversation today and hopefully not only a conversation, hopefully we'll have a lot of fun. Uh, I do want to remind people that are watching, tell us who you are and where we're from. And I see a couple of people already weighing in here. We've got Becca, an educational advocate from uh, New Hampshire. Uh, I've got oh, our friend Floyd. Uh, Floyd is tuning in from Tulsa, Oklahoma. 
Uh, and we've got Susan here, a um, advocate uh, and parent and teen coach from Denver, Colorado. Uh, and we've got somebody here also from Washington State, autistic parent and two autistic girls with IEPs. My youngest is emerging high tech uh, AAC user. That's fantastic. Uh, another teacher here joining us from San Diego. So, um, and, and as I promised you, we, we tend to have people from all over the world. So I, I'm hoping that my New Zealand friends are not still sleeping because uh, tomorrow is like Friday morning, I think, in, in New Zealand and Australia. Um, we've got somebody here from Long Island, New York as well. It's so exciting to have you. Um, you know, I've kind of followed um, you on social media for a while. And, you know, there are just these things that would pop up and, you know, these videos that you would do a lot of the um, like the TikTok kind of videos and things <laughs> like that. And, you know, it, it's it's 30 seconds of brilliance sometimes that you're just like, yes, yes. You know, this is somebody that gets it. So I wanted to start by learning a little bit more about you, kind of your story. Um, you know, how did you kind of get down the, the road of education and, and being a special educator? So can you start off by telling us a little bit about, you know, what brought you into education? Yeah, so um, I'm from a family of educators. My mom has been a teacher for 35 years. Um, I have aunts that are that are in education as well. And so I kind of grew up in the education system. And like, I never had that weird moment where you realize teachers don't sleep at school because like, the teacher that I've known for forever sleeps at my house. So it's kind of a weird thing that you realize when you grow up um, in a family of a teacher, all these things that people are like, what do you mean the teacher's outside of school? I'm like, duh. Like, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so my, my mom's in education. Um, I knew I wanted to be in education when I was in high school. I was in the North Carolina Teaching Fellows Program um, in college. I originally wanted to teach high school English and history. I started out my uh, degree that way. And then I ended up working at a summer camp um, in Black Mountain, North Carolina, uh, for autistic individuals. Um, and I applied for that because my brother is autistic. And I was like, mm. yeah, he's okay. So like, I could do that as a job, right? Um, and it was like the highest paying summer camp job. So I figured that that was a good fit. Uh, and ended up just falling in love with it. And like the culture um, of that camp, it's called Camp Lakey Gap. Um, and it it's where I learned about neurodiversity. Um, we watched the film Neurotypical by Adam Larson. I don't know if you're familiar with that uh, documentary, but uh, just kind of learning about what like true acceptance and appreciation and embracing of neurodivergent people looks like. Mm -hmm. um, and so I uh, went back to college and I had my first internship in a high school English class. And I was like, oh, I don't like this. <laughs> um, and so, the like Friday before classes for the second semester were starting Monday, I dropped all my classes, added all new classes in special education, changed my major. Um, and that kind of started me down the road of where mm -hmm. I am now. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, so you already had kind of a, a lens from the experience that you had. And, and I would say that, wow, what a, what a fortunate experience, right? Because uh, not every camp that is like that, that you describe right. um, has that lens, has that um, kind of, uh, thoughtfulness behind it. Um, so it sounds like with that and, and your own experience personally, you know, we often find, I think, um, you know, many people that get into special education have a, you know, a brother or a sister or someone that they love and, and get into it in part for that reason that they want to make a difference. In fact, my daughter is now 13, but I remember when she was probably, oh gosh, seven or eight years old, uh, telling me that she wanted to be a teacher and that she wanted to help kids like her brother, who is neurodivergent. And, uh, you know, it's just an amazing thing. And I think kids sometimes are so insightful, but it's great to hear kind of about your journey. So 
you get through your college program. And, you know, one of the things that um, I've been talking a lot to a lot of different people about recently is the fact that um, a lot of our university programs are not really preparing educators for some of the things that they're going to see in our classrooms. They're not necessarily preparing them for uh, having a background or understanding around disability or neurodivergence. They're not really preparing them to understand, you know, um, if you're an elementary school teacher, you know, that you may have a child that's yet to be identified as a child with a disability that might be having some really big behaviors due to uh, kind of a, a, a nervous system that's having a difficult time. Um, and I think that does a real disservice when when educators aren't getting that that background um, and things that would really be helpful and necessary. And as a result, when a teacher begins teaching and they come into a school, they're very, I think, um, easily. Well, they're, they're going to be um, influenced by what the culture and the training is around that particular school. So if they're a very punitive school, that might be kind of what they're introduced to at first. If they're not. Uh, neurodiversity affirming, you know, that certainly is going to be something they're, they're exposed to. Do you, did you have that experience in your uh, college program? I mean, did, did you feel that even looking back now, you know, was there enough focus in those areas? And, and if not, what can we do about that? Um, I had one class on behavior in my undergrad program. Um, and it was all, it was like behaviorism behavior. Uh, so not like positive, I, I, it certainly focused on positive behavior supports, but like through a behaviorist lens right, and not right. through um, a really affirming lens, not through the lens of disability culture and right. any of those pieces. Um, so, and and it was not a great class <laughs> anyways. Um, but I, it, I feel like even then I wasn't, I wasn't to the point where I am now where right. like I really reject what behaviorism is and stands for and claims. Um, and I wasn't there at that point, but um, even then I was kind of like this, I don't, uh, I don't know about this. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, did, it didn't necessarily feel right, but yeah. I mean, this, this is your, your, I mean, you're being taught this in college. I mean, it must be right. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. and it's interesting. A lot, a lot of people do not know that um, after I finished my undergrad, I went and got my master's um, at the university of Texas at Austin in a, BCBA preparation program. Mm -hmm. um, so I did all of the, the coursework to become a board certified behavior analyst. Um, and kind of after my first half a semester there, I was like, I don't, I don't like this. <laughs> I don't think this is all it's cracked up to be. Um, and I actually ended up my last course for that program. Um, I advocated for doing an independent study with one of my professors instead. And I actually wrote a thesis about how different intervention programs for um, autistic students and how they uh, are rated if you're looking at them through a culturally responsive lens through the lens of autistic culture. Mm -hmm. So like which evidence-based programs are really affirming for our students. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, I'm imagining where this is. This is not great, <laughs> but the professor I was working with was great because he was he was just uh, like the class that we took with him was like a culture and um, like equity class. Mm -hmm. uh, so kind of my first shift in thinking, one of the articles we read was about disability culture and how disability, disability culture is included in classes um, and like in the public school system. And um, so that's kind of the, the lens that I went with for that. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting. Um, you know, as, as a parent, um, we never did ABA. 
it was recommended to us at one point, but um, I'd like to tell you that I knew more and knew better and didn't. But the truth was that when it was recommended to us in the same breath, we were told, well, your, your son's probably too old for that. Um, when we started the Alliance, we, we very much were focused on moving away from compliance based approaches, moving into, you know, connection and, and brain science and trauma informed approaches and, you know, neurodiversity affirming approaches, all of those things. Uh, but, you know, it, it wasn't until, you know, I began to hear the um, lived experiences from autistic self-advocates who are part of our community that I really learned so much about, you know, ABA, you know, kind of prior to that, we hadn't done it. I didn't have much experience. I knew that it was highly, you know, kind of out there in terms of being recommended, but the, the lived experience of um, the many autistic members of our community and what they shared um, really informed what became my, my thoughts on that. You know, I had thoughts on behaviorism, you know, kind of all before that, but um, it's tough. It's tough because I think, um, you know, many people are led down that road by well-intentioned providers and others. And um, I think change is coming. Uh, I am thrilled to see the voices of um, self-advocates and in the case of ABA, uh, many autistic self-advocates who I think are really changing the conversation and uh, are beginning to be heard. Uh, but like you, um, I mean, I think that I uh, didn't know much until I, I really began to learn more and dive in and understand, you know, what were some of the issues that were problematic about some of the approaches. So when I was reading your um, your bio um, and, and knowing what I know about you, um, I, I saw next behavior support specialist. And, you know, when you see the word behavior support, you often think um, behaviorism. We often think, I mean, and going back to what you said, you learned in college, you know, yeah. a whole lot of, you know, BF Skinner and operant conditioning and reward and consequence. And uh, I think we're probably both, uh, you know, under that idea that that's not the way that we should be heading with things. But wow, I mean, uh, in behavior support, in the, the realm of a behavior support specialist, you're, you're going up against a system if you're coming in there with different thoughts. So talk to us a little bit about like your evolution. So you get your degree, you start off in a school, you know there were gaps in maybe what you knew, but you had these instincts. Tell us about your journey early on. I mean, how did that journey shift and change as you became a teacher and became the person you are today? Yeah, um, it's it's hard looking back on my like first year teaching. Um, it's really rough that the like, I had a couple of people that I was close with in the school, but otherwise the school culture was very much and my, my teaching experience is in like a self-contained um, special education classroom um, with students accessing an adapted curriculum. Um, and it was very much like those students and then the rest of the school, you know, mm -hmm. um, and that was, you know, my first year, my, my first school. And I, I'd only stayed there for one year. Um, I had a lot of difficulty with, um, some adults and the adult support that I had and how people were trying to support students in my classroom that like I was really not okay with. Okay. Um, and then kind of the expectations of like, there are some students with some safety needs. So basically you just have to stay in your room all the time. You're not allowed to leave for the last like two months of school. And I was like, mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't, I'm not okay with this. And mm -hmm. after trying to advocate a lot, I just decided it was not a good environment for me to, to be in. And I made a shift um, and went to a different school in a different district um, and there I had a lot more positive support. There was a lot of push for just like a school culture of inclusion. So while I was mm -hmm. still teaching in a self-contained classroom, um, there was like an elective, like their, their specials classes. Every Friday they had electives and kids signed up 
um, to kind of do like a peer class um, with my students where they were then able to, they like came and helped us at Special Olympics and um, in a really like authentic and positive relationship way and not mm -hmm. in the like, oh, you're our little like buddy helpers for right, kids right, until right. your age, you know, like, yeah. no, we're, we're peers. Um, but like, I, I have a picture from my first or second, no, not my first, my second or third year teacher, my first or second year at that school um, of one of my students who loved collecting like little, little things. So like little acorns or little mm -hmm. pebbles um, or like he'd come to school with like his parents' keys and mom and dad would be like, did he bring the keys to school? <laughs> <laughs> um, so he just had, like, I love to collect all these things. And I have a picture of him and five other fourth graders. He was in fourth grade collecting acorns on the playground. And he would bring, they would bring them to him and be like, is this a good one? Is this, and like, they were just all mm -hmm. hanging out collecting acorns because it was something that he really enjoyed and they wanted mm -hmm. to do it with him. And just like fostering those positive relationships and that, was really important for me. And I stayed at that school for a really long time. Um, we, you know, at that school did a school-wide autism acceptance celebration. That's where we started our autism acceptance spirit mm -hmm. week, um, where all the kids got to dress up in different ways to kind of learn more about like what it meant to be autistic mm -hmm. um, and really developed this culture of inclusion. They, they learned about neurodiversity. Um, we actually did a pre and post assessment for autism acceptance month of like, learning, you know, like, how can you be a friend to someone whose brain is different than you? And like, what, like, what does that look like? And um, of seeing like, afterwards, they knew what neurodivergent meant. And for the longest time, the kids called me, you're that brain lady that came and talked to us about brains. Like, yes, that is me. I am the brain lady. Thank you. Yep. <laughs> well, like, there, there can be worse things to be called, right? <laughs> yeah, well, and it's definitely better than like the teacher with those kids sometimes. Right. So right. I really liked the like, brain lady so, so so just let me interrupt you for a second yeah. uh, they knew you as the brain lady what were you teaching them about the brain that, that um, gave you that uh label because I, I i'm a big proponent of a little bit of brain science goes a really long way and i i'm a, a believer that teachers parents and kids need to know a little bit of brain science you don't need to be a neurologist but a little bit of understanding about how our own body works and our own brain and nervous system work i think is so critical so tell me what, what were you doing that got you known as the brain lady so we did a, an activity, we read uh, Todd Parr's book, It's Okay to Be Different. And then mm -hmm. we illustrated our own brains to, to illustrate how they all work differently and wrote why our each of our unique brains was like important or helpful or whatever. Um, and then we talked a lot about um, like sensory perception and how like it can spike our, our nervous system in different ways. And um and like kind of that perspective of like, if you are experiencing this information differently, how is that gonna impact you differently? Um, I think if I go, if I could go back now or like the lessons that I tried to, to support teachers with and now, I, I like looking at more of that like polyvagal lens right. of pulling in a lot of that more like, you know, this is what you're, you're like, here's your window of tolerance. What does it right. look like when you're hypo aroused? What does it look like when you're hyper aroused? And um, all of those different pieces. Yeah. Right. And your brain is actually wired to keep itself alive and safe. And yeah. there are behaviors that are not, in fact, thoughtful behaviors. They're not misbehaving. But, you know, children are sometimes having, you know, stress related behaviors, getting people to make that mind shift. You know, there's this assumption that all kids behavior is just, you know, 
they're choosing this. To gain and, or to avoid, yeah, right, <laughs> like right, plastic right. behaviors. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Well, I want to dig into that more, but before I do, I just want to call out a couple things here. Um, one is, uh, you know, kind of a, a friend and colleague out here that's uh, joined us. Hey, Greg! Greg Santusi. So uh, great to see Greg. Um, Greg says, with a behaviorist mindset uh, being so prevalent in schools and McAllister being so successful making change in her school, what pushback did she get and how did does she address it? So that's a great question. That's kind of where I was heading with when I said, well, you know, you're a behavior specialist and the, your ideas are different. So so tell us a little bit about that, you know, in throughout your career, you know, again, uh, you know, kind of with that title of behavior support specialist, but coming from a different mindset, what's it been like for you uh, and how have you made progress? Um, well, it's interesting. The actually the entire reason I started my account and my like social media presence um, was there was someone at my school that started selling those like puzzle piece ribbons for Autism Awareness Month. Um, and I went to my administrator and I was like, hey, this isn't okay. Here's all the reasons why this is not okay. Um, and like, here are some alternatives. And the response that I got was like, well, then why is it the district putting that information? If you're saying oh, this is all this problematic stuff and this is what we should be doing, why isn't someone higher up? Like, why isn't that a district-wide message? It's like, okay, well then fine. I'll tell everybody what it needs to be and um, I'll figure that out. And so thus began kind of my journey online. And then eventually here when I got to the point where I was like, okay, I've done everything that I can do at the school level. I would like to go to a different level and see what other kind of change I can make. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, but but no, I mean, I have no doubt that, um, you know, when change is hard and when you're bringing in different ideas, uh, you know, I mean, frankly, what's being taught today, you know, you know, many years, you know, not well, not many, but a number of years after you graduated and, uh, you know, uh, went into teaching, what's still being taught is a lot of behaviorism, a lot of rewarding consequence, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of things that aren't, I mean, really are, are from a decade or excuse me, a, a century ago, you know, we're talking 1930s and 1950s, yet we've got this body of neuroscience, this body of work on trauma uh, that haven't made their way into so many schools around the country. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm sure, <laughs> in fact, I, I saw some, uh, audience members here that I know are in North Carolina. In fact, uh, here's, uh, uh, one of them, uh, Sandra Dawn, who is in Wilmington. Uh, I, I know a lot of that knowledge has not made it to a lot of the, the schools in North Carolina or around the, the, um, the country. So it really is tough to feel like you're sometimes going uphill, um, and, you know, people aren't always receptive to, you know, what you might be bringing in, in terms of some of this. I, so I imagine that that was difficult at times for you. Yeah, and I think it's um, there are a couple of things that have been really helpful for me. I think one um, in North Carolina we have um, the Teach program, which um, I think is a generally speaking very neurodiversity affirming way of supporting autistic individuals. It's about increasing accessibility and independence and um, setting up systems that allow people to succeed in their environment. Mm -hmm. um, and so that like piece in North Carolina, I find very helpful because people already have this underlying like piece of, of that like background. Um, and like Eric Shopler, who was kind of the pilot behind Teach, mm -hmm. uh, t spoke a lot against um, a lot of the behaviorist things that were coming out in his time and mm -hmm. you know the the uh, 1900s gosh that's weird to say um yeah 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 <laughs> so but I yeah. think like that that foundation is a little bit helpful mm -hmm. I have found in North Carolina so there's a nice like cluster of kind of neurodiversity affirming people um from just that that exposure um and then with 
my kind of transition to um, behavior specialist position, I, um, I came to a space that they were doing a lot of equity work and a lot of um, work on redoing um, their systems for supporting students. Um, and I was kind of able to come in at a good time to get it, give the lens of neurodiversity affirming, disability affirming um, support and how are we looking at this through a tra trauma-informed lens, through an atypical developmental lens um, and making sure we're not just saying, okay, to gain or to avoid. Because sometimes like there are behaviors that like it is, I'm hungry and so I'm trying to gain food and not like I'm gonna engage in this behavior. Um, but even then it's just like meeting an unmet need, right? Uh, but like, then there are also these like, I am completely out of control of what's happening right now uh, because it's a stress response or um, like my filter, my impulsivity is a typically developed thing because my brain is neurodivergent and therefore like I do not have the capacity to like not blurt this thing out. And it's not because mm -hmm. I want your attention. It's just because the words are here and I can't stop them from coming out. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've been able to bring a lot of light to those different facets um, when kind of assessing behavior and providing support. So I think a lot of just good timing has been really helpful um, and helping approach from a lens of providing additional insights and additional information um, and giving, you know, examples. When I, when I was talking with some of my teammates about like, well, what if it's not just to gain or to avoid? Like, what right. if it's these other things? Um, and I talked about like, I have ADHD. I have significant time blindness. Um, I'm going to not remember what time it is. And, and whether I'm doing something that I want to be doing or something that I hate, I lose track of time and I'm late for this meeting, this meeting that I really want to be at because I like these people that I meet with. I like the work that we're doing. But I lost track of time. And instead, I was doing all this data that I didn't want to be doing. Mm -hmm. And I'm not late because I'm trying to escape this meeting. I'm not late right. because I want to do this for longer. I'm late because my development is different and my understanding and perception of time is different. And that mm -hmm. has nothing to do with our black and white view of to gain or avoid. And I think mm -hmm. when I was able to give some of those like examples, it helped kind of, I think, shed some light on like, okay, well, there are these alternatives. So what, what do we list that as when we're talking about behavior? How do we help mm -hmm. teams express that and identify that? And then what do they do with that information? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, one of the things that we know is that if we look at, um, you know, kids that I think are, are more often um, at risk of being misunderstood, kids that are more often, you know, restrained, secluded, suspended, expelled, subjected to corporal punishment, uh, kids that are often on the wrong side of, you know, discipline and, and behavioral plans that aren't working. Uh, certainly neurodivergent kids are um, highly overrepresented on that list. Uh, black and brown children, kids with a trauma history. Um, thinking about the the practices and the things that you've done. I mean, you know, again, there's a lot of well-intentioned practices, a lot of well-intentioned practices that are not only not helpful, but if you really stop and think about them are harmful. And, you know, I'm thinking about things I've know I, I've heard you talk about as well, whether it's a, you know, a clip chart or, or you know, um, you know, other kinds of, and, and even things like uh, PBIS, which is Positive Behavior Interventions and Supports, which is, uh, sounds like, it's, it's a really positive name. Often the interventions that are part of that are very behaviorally driven, mm -hmm. uh, very rewarding consequence driven. And of course, you know, I'm a, I'm a believer that 
um, you know, kids, you know, kind of in the Ross Green vein, kids do well if they can. You know, it's often, you know, they, they don't have the skill, the ability. Uh, maybe it's about the experiences they've had. So thinking about all these things, thinking about the the kids that are often on the wrong side of this. Um, and I'm going to phrase this in kind of funny way. I'm trying to think it through still. But, you know, what would be some of the neuro, neurodivergent um, uh, teacher approved ways of, of better supporting the classroom? So, you know, if you were to come up with a couple of strategies and tips so you know for other educators that are out there and we, we tend to have a lot of educators in our audience what are the things that you would recommend or if parents are listening what might you recommend that they bring to their team to share what are some of the things that you found can really make the biggest difference in helping to change the culture and the approach in a classroom um one of my kind of go-to first things and i share about this a lot is teaching regulation in very direct and structured ways that are that are designed in ways that complement our students' brains and how, how they're thinking. So, you know, telling a kid, remember, we can take deep breaths in the middle of like an escalated situation is, is not going to help anyone. <laughs> um, kind of like so, telling somebody to calm down, right? Exactly. Calm down. It's not that big of a deal. Calm down. Yeah. When has that helped you ever? Okay. Okay. Uh, okay. So um, one of my biggest recommendations is like your tier one intervention is Every day at morning meeting for a week, you're going to do a week study of a strategy that's structured. And I love to have my little like boxes. Uh, this is how I love to structure it for like younger elementary students. But like if we're teaching deep breathing, for example, and we really want it to be meaningful, we might have these little pinwheels and we're going to take one at a time and take a big deep breath and blow in it and put it in our little finish spot. And then when all the pinwheels are gone, we're done taking our breaths. And then modeling that for class and having students demonstrate it for the class. And then, okay, after they've demonstrated it, we're now going to put it in our class regulation station um, where you can go use it. So that's our tier one is like introducing and directly teaching all of those strategies and having them openly accessible for students. And then the, the tier two of that is like, okay, you have your students that are significantly experiencing or are frequently experiencing dysregulation. So mm -hmm. what then? So then my kind of tier two recommendation is, okay, those kids need scheduled times every day at, in that regulation space with an adult to practice those skills, to practice co-regulation when they're de-escalated. So this shouldn't be, oh, you get upset two times a day, so we're going to send you every time you get upset. No, like when they're calm, have them come choose a couple of activities. Yeah. Um, incorporate their interests as much as possible, schedule time in that space. That's kind of your tier two. And then your tier three is additional breaks and how are we kind of individualizing those structures more? Like if this isn't meaningful to them, what what else can we do that's meaningful to help structure kind mm -hmm. of those, mm -hmm. those supports? Um, mm -hmm. So that's like my like number one go-to, have a regulation station in a way that you're teaching strategies and you're giving them the same amount of layered instruction that you would an academic that's so that's so important right it's yeah. so important you, you know if if we handled kids that weren't able to read in the same way we handle kids that that are having a difficult time you know behaviorally um nobody would ever learn to read i mean it, it's just the expectations um are, are so different and you know kids often need 
they need to be, you know, they need to be helped to learn the skills or the abilities or, uh, mm-hmm. you know, kind of work through things that may have been traumatic, whatever it may be. So uh, I love what you're talking about. And of course, you know, um, you know, that's quite a bit different than, uh, you know, putting a kid in a uh, seclusion room, holding the door shut and hoping mm-hmm. somehow magically they come out the other they end of that. come down from right, that. Right, right, right. By right, putting right. them alone with their big feelings. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. You know, um, of course, we do a lot of work around trying to, um, you know, change laws and policies around restraint and seclusion. You know, our, our feeling is that seclusion is never an appropriate you know, practice, putting a kid in a room against their will, holding the door shut. But it happens around the country. And, you know, the thing is, kids go in those rooms and it is terrifying. You know, they beat, they scream. Uh, they eventually might shut down, might go into dissociative state. It's it's really tough. Um, so I lo- love what you're sharing there. I want to take a break for a second and go through. There were a couple of, well, there's quite a few comments. People are really jumping on here. Uh, and I did just want to address this comment too, just because we were talking about, um, you know, changing in law uh, testified earlier this week in Washington state who is working on legislation to ban the use of seclusion. Actually, they call yeah. it isolation, same thing. So making some progress. Uh, Maxine said, uh, thank you um, for your education and conversation. My 20 year old autistic daughter has PTSD from treatment in the educational system. Um, yeah, unfortunately, um, you know, we've seen that where there's, um, you know, trauma that happens in a school based or systemic setting. Uh, and there's often a blind spot to that, you know, I mean, you know, we, we think we're helping kids and how could that possibly happen, but it certainly can happen. Uh, let's see a uh, couple. Okay. Uh, so Rebecca said, uh, and this was when we were talking about kind of what you were teaching about the brain uh, said, uh, I love that. I've done some similar things using neuroclastics. Uh, my brain story, uh, love neuroclastic. They do some yeah, great, yeah. great work there. Uh, let's see what else we have here from Kirsten. Uh, how do you help teachers see that a kid's window of tolerance is a can slash can't issue versus a will slash won't issue? It's mostly a brain difference, not a, a skills gap. Um, that is a hard conversation. I mean, I think a lot of paradigm shifting has to kind of happen when you support that. Um, I think a lot of it starts with conversations of kids do well when they can. Right. Uh, gotta gotta bring up the Raskin quote again um, right. of that. No kid wakes up and is like, ah, you know what I want to do today? Like, I want to piss off my teacher. Like that. That's what my goal is. There's no one, no child that wakes up like this is what I'm going to do today. Kids are doing the best that they can with the skills that they have in any given moment. Um, And I think part of that uh, kind of belief and shift comes when you start start to show here, here are the, the ways that we can support this. Here are the accommodations we can give. And then we start to see kind of increased time in their window of tolerance instead of in hyper or hypo arousal. Like, oh, okay. Like I, I, I see that this is effective. Yeah. Yeah. And of course the, the first and the biggest change that has to happen is not the kid, right? It's the adult yeah. mindset. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I think well, it, that's what behavior plans are. I tell people all the time, behavior yeah. plan is not for the kid. It's for the, yeah. it's telling the adults what you need to do to support the kid. That's right. That's right. But, but a good behavior plan should talk about the adult behavior as well and what adults are doing to, to support a kid. Uh, Greg just came in again and said, Hey, what's up brain lady. So that, that's your new, uh, that'll be your new URL. Yeah, yeah. Brain lady. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and see, I'm, I'm, I'm not exaggerating here. We have uh, somebody from Queensland, Australia, uh, joining us, which is always great. Uh, let's see. Uh, Gina said, my concern is getting the family more realistic support, especially 
uh, with more children being diagnosed with autism. So I guess that's probably in response to some of the conversations we might have been having around behavioral approaches. Uh, one of the questions that we sometimes get is kind of, the, if well, if not ABA, then what? Uh, we actually have done a, a couple of programs on that to talk about some of the alternatives. Um, do you have any ideas in that space of, of you know, if you're not going to do some of these behavioral approaches, what to do? Um, I think when we look and assess behavior from a whole child lens instead of from a behavioral lens, there are a lot of strategies that we can implement. How, how accessible is the environment for a student? Mm -hmm. Starting with accessibility is huge. Like if you, okay, I walk into this classroom and I see clutter everywhere and I know my students with specific neurotypes are going to see all of those pieces instead of the big picture and immediately be overwhelmed. First thing we can do to increase accessibility is helping that teacher get things organized and cleared off. So it's not so visually overwhelming for a student. And as someone who looking around my office has clutter everywhere, I know that's really hard for some people. Um, so like providing support to teachers, I feel like is a big piece that I think teachers in general, um, speaking as a teacher, want to do well and write by their kids. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they don't have any more like time and capacity and energy to give. So kind of helping them get started is something that I really try to do of like, here, let me bring you these resources that are helpful here. Let me introduce them to your kid. Um, because it's hard. I mean, public school teaching is really, really hard in general, but like right now it's, it's, it's really, really, really tough. Oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. So. Yeah, and then like we've said, kids do well if they can, Te teachers do well if they can. No yeah. teacher goes to school thinking I want to restrain or seclude a kid, or I want to, you know, punish this kid. You know, people get into teaching because they want to help and they want to support kids. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, it, it is a tough time. And, you know, I think one of the problems is if you can't imagine another solution to your problem, and this is the only thing, you know, yeah. It's really hard to move away from that, even if you know it's not working. But I, I love what you're saying, which is really it's more it's more than just focusing on the kid. It's more than just focusing on the behavior. It's about looking at the environment. It's about understanding individual differences. It's about so much more. Uh, I'm, I'm a proponent of kind of the social model disability over the medical model, which I imagine you are as well, which is a totally different mindset as well, which is saying, you know, let's not pathologize and say, you know, this is a deficit or this is what's wrong with somebody, but let's look at how we can make changes in the environment to support all people, um, you know, which sounds kind of, you know, along the vein of what you're saying as well, like, how can we appropriately accommodate? I remember since Greg's here, uh, having a conversation with Greg when he was on at one point, and I'm like, you know, it's not the functional behavioral assessment that's needed, but maybe it's a, you know, it's an environmental assessment. You know, before we look at the kid, let's look at all the other factors that are around mm -hmm. and see if we can figure out what, you know, uh, Stuart um, Schenker uh, from Self Reg uh, wrote a great book. Mm -hmm. uh, he often says the important questions are why and why now, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just why, but, but why is it happening now? Mm -hmm. And there's so much that can come from so many different sources other than the child. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I have a uh, kind of SEL and behavior tier one self-assessment checklist thing that I provide to, to teachers sometimes to take time to look at, okay, like here are, here are the things that we know research-based increases success for students. So like how many of those things are you currently doing and like what areas do you want to kind of try to target to help improve that, that piece? And that, you know, includes things from the CASEL SEL framework um, it includes things from um, like the, the teach approach, um, as well as um, culturally responsive, culturally informed, trauma responsive, trauma informed practice um, of just like, how are we hitting these pieces of what 
our classroom community and culture and setup should be so that we're, we're taking away as many barriers as possible mm -hmm, to help mm -hmm. increase student success. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I've got something here from, uh, again, uh, uh, Sandra, who's in North Carolina there with you. Uh, and Sandra says, I've seen a lot of pushback from teachers, particularly general education teachers, that they should not uh, not be expected to deal with many of the student behaviors present in the classroom. And many times I've seen children, particularly uh, special education children, vilified, leading to a push to get some children out of the classroom. Uh, how can we promote inclusive learning spaces and help gen ed teachers understand that our children belong? Um, a, a big recommendation that I like to give teachers and schools and programs that like it's kind of met with mixed mixed results. It kind of depends on the the kind of culture. Um, is instead of when you call and you need help in your classroom and asking admin and admin coming and and taking the kid away that needs behavior support. Um, I have always recommended have your administrator take over teaching the lesson and then the teacher sit and co-regulate and help mm -hmm. that student get back to the space that they need to be because then the teacher not only is is developing that like mm -hmm. supportive relationship with that student uh the principal doesn't become this punitive thing where they come right. when i'm having a hard time um and it helps keep the kid like where they need to be and it's it's allowing the person who knows that child best their teacher instead of the administrator be the one that's supporting them through it and helping them get through whatever tough thing they're trying to manage in that moment mm -hmm. um, and i mm -hmm. think if if schools can make that switch instead of pulling the kid out and let's go to the office and have a conversation, whatever, and then come back, if it can be like, let the teacher take over what they have already started supporting that kid through, um, I think it would help with a lot of that kind of like vilification of our EC students and like they mm -hmm. just get removed because they're disrupting the class. No, like administration can take over your lesson plan. Uh, any good administrator can pick up and kind of do whatever right, in right. class while you're supporting the kid that like really needs the most support in that moment. Yeah, no, I love that. Um, you know, relationships are so critical. And, uh, you know, I think there's often this thought like, um, I can't deal with this and, uh, you know, the, the come take this child away. And, uh, you know, that never solves a problem in the long run. Right. I mean, that, that's a great idea what you're talking about. I, I love that. Uh, and of course, you know, uh, teachers need to be aware of their own nervous systems. And if they're really at a state where they're not going to be effective at doing it, uh, maybe that's not the moment for them to do it. But I think, you know, uh, there's so much potential in, in doing something like that. Um, we have a lot of a lot of people commenting here. Uh, class regulation station. I love that. No more quiet rooms or calming rooms. Uh, yeah, absolutely agree with that. I want to uh, shift gears for a second. We still have a lot of comments, but I want to shift gears for a second. <laughs> and I want to um, oops, bear with me here. Uh, I want to. Um, introduce you to a, a student here. Uh, so bear with me. I'm going to, I'm going to bring this student up. Uh, uh, the student's name is Larry, by the way. Um, so you, you might, you might, you might know Larry. And uh, I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit uh, about Larry and uh, well, well, we'll start out with, uh, oops, here we go. Uh, and if all has gone well, uh, I should be sharing my screen. Um, so hopefully everybody can see that. Um, can you tell me a little bit about this whole body listening, Larry? Um, you know, many people may have seen this before, uh, may have seen it hanging in a classroom or otherwise. Can you tell me what this is and and uh, what's concerning about it? Yeah, so this is uh, Larry from about uh, like 10, 10 or 11 years ago. Um, and he was telling students how um, they, it was, he was trying to explain to students what teachers mean when they say, 
you need to listen. And what teachers mean when they say they're not actually saying they want you to listen, they're actually saying they want to see these observable behaviors. And that's what Larry is, is uh, saying. Uh, and unfortunately, it very quickly became like, you're, you know, I mean, it, and it was presented as mm -hmm. you're not listening if you're not looking at me. You're not listening if your hands aren't folded and in your lap. Mm -hmm. You're not listening if um, your body isn't still. Um, and, and one of the examples that I think is often uh, misunderstood of like your heart, your heart is listening when it's connecting with other people. And the only appropriate way to connect with other people is to listen and not to share your own experiences and provide neurodivergent style mm -hmm. empathy. Um, it's very standard based um, when I feel like if we all understand that listening isn't a standard. It's just kind mm -hmm. of a thing that you do. Um, mm -hmm. And everybody does it in their different ways. I have my fidgets sitting here talking to y'all. Mm -hmm. um, and listening doesn't have to look one way because listening isn't an outward observable behavior. It's an internal experience. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, one of the problems with this um, is that, um, you know, like you said, it, it's not just one way, but um, these things are still really prevalent out there. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I hear things like uh, kids are put into seclusion rooms and they're told uh, quiet hands and feet. You can't leave until you have quiet hands and feet. Uh, so you, you've, you, you know, stress the kid out beyond belief. And, and now uh, the, the only way out is, is by having quiet hands and feet. Uh, my son, I'm, I'm kind of ashamed to say very early on had in his IEP, uh, a goal about eye contact. And that was not uncommon, probably still is not uncommon. Uh, my son did not need to make eye contact to probably hear everything that was going on in the room. Uh, you know, he was a kid that could be listening while doing something else, uh, while also hearing the conversations that the teachers had about their weekends. Uh, and I know that because he'd come home and share those with me. Um, so th there's a lot of problems with this. And, you know, I mean, a lot of ableism as well in terms of kind of, um, you know, putting neurotypical expectations on all children. So um, you, and, and I'm going to go ahead and get rid of, uh, get rid of Larry here, but we're going to bring Larry back in a second, uh, but we're going to bring back a different, a different Larry. And I wonder if you might uh, talk to us a little bit about this. So bear with me, just uh, sharing my other uh, screen here and hopefully we'll have uh, let's see, there we go. All right. Perfect. All right. Uh, so this is a different um, uh, version of this. Can you talk a little bit about this and yeah. how, how it came to be? So this is a new Larry. And um, so, uh, I don't know, a little while ago, I posted about how whole body listening is ableist um, mm -hmm. and how it has all of these problematic expectations. Um, and um, around the time where that had kind of, it wasn't when I originally posted it, but it kind of resurfaced and was people were talking about it again. Um, one of the original creators um, and authors of Whole Body Listening, Larry, um, Elizabeth, reached out to me and was like, hey, well, will you consult on this project? We'd like to make some changes. Can you help us? Like, we're not really sure where to go. Um, and that kind of consultation then became a partnership. And uh, we worked on developing the new Whole Body Listening Larry. Um, part of that process included um, focus groups with neurodivergent people to say like, hey, like what, what do you like, do you want Larry to just go away? Like we could just take him away and Larry could be gone forever. Um, and a lot of people are like, no, like Larry, Larry has like a name and a presence in schools. Like, let's use Larry to change this, this presence and, and show how we can know better and do better, how we can evolve um, and how there are ways that we can teach listening because listening is a skill that needs to be taught. And that was the need they were trying to fill. Mm -hmm. But how do we teach that? We teach that through learning 
regulation, learning how to read your body's signals, learning what you need to be the most effective listener. So our new poster um, that came out in, I don't know, November or something like that, um, we uh, we designed to be a, a collaborative process. So it can be printed for individual students to fill out, um, or if you get like a big classroom poster size of it, um, we envision it being used as the whole class talking about, okay, let's collaboratively build this. What are our like listening needs and how do we ensure that all of our needs are being met, right? Because if you have the student that needs to echo and repeat to process what's being said, we probably don't want that next that student sitting next to the person that needs complete silence in order to get the auditory mm-hmm. information. Mm-hmm. Um, and so thinking about collaboratively, how can we as a class community make sure all of our listening needs are met? Um, what ways can we problem solve how we're all working together to listen in this space um, together? So, yeah, that's the new poster. That's great. And uh, I'm going to stop sharing this real quick. Um, My understanding from talking to you uh, earlier before we went on is that there's there's something else exciting happening around uh, around Larry. Uh, I wonder if you might be able to share that with our uh, our viewers. Yeah, so um, Larry, uh, in his original iteration, had two books. He had Whole Body Listening Larry at School and Whole Body Listening Larry at Home. Um, And the one at school became really popular as paired with that poster. Um, And so we are kind of redoing and revamping those uh, books. They're supposed to come out the the most, the one for school is coming out um, in September and we hope to do additional work with that as we go. But um, it's all about Larry uh, learning and kind of being corrected of like, actually, this isn't how everybody learns. Here are all the different ways that we could listen. Here are all of the different examples. And maybe you do something like this, or maybe you do something totally different than what, you know, the examples we provide, but like how there are sometimes people are going to listen best when they're fidgeting with something. Some people are going to listen best when their eyes are closed so they can process the information without having the the visual input. Um, That there are all these different pieces that tie into listening and it all comes back to how we're able to regulate and read our bodies. Mm-hmm. So, so you're an author on this book that's coming out in September, okay. uh, which is really exciting. And I told you earlier, I'm like, when it comes out, not only do we need to get a copy, we want to, we, we want to interview on you and talk about the book. So uh, hopefully you'll be able to join us again uh, when the book comes out and talk about it. But you know, that, that's really exciting. What I, what I love most about what you've shared uh, and there's a couple of really thing, things that are, that are promising, right? Uh, the fact that people were coming to you for input, the, p- the fact that you had so, more, so many uh, neurodivergent individuals that got involved in the process, you know, big believer in kind of the, the nothing about us without us, right? Uh, and, and it's great to use the right words and say the right language. But if you're not actually, you know, working with and involving, uh, you know, the right people, you don't get the right results. So it's really exciting that that work is is kind of going forward and uh, kind of moving in the uh, the right direction. Uh, Rebecca mentioned Autism Level Up has Bumper, and I've seen that as well. Uh, I'll have to see if I can find that and share that. Um, well, that's really exciting. That's exciting, exciting work. Let me shift into a couple of more questions because we, when you have really gotten people excited here. We have a lot of people weighing in with uh, different questions and thoughts. Uh, Cass said, my daughter's kindergarten class literally clips kids down on the public clip chart for not sitting crisscross applesauce, hands in laps, eyes on teacher. Uh, and they have student scouts who are selected by another, oh gosh, uh, to monitor other kids for this behavior. Oh, this is terrible. Uh, in public school, gen ed, kindergarten classroom in Washington right now, this school year. Um, McAllister, tell me what you think about that. Tell me what you think about clip charts. 
uh, which one? Which are we talking about the sitting this way? Or are we talking about the clip charts? Because there's a lot of layers. You, 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 you can rant, rant on both. <laughs> okay, well, the, the, the crisscross applesauce sitting, however, whatever, that hmm, uh, a lot of people call it gimme five. Like right. crisscross, hands in lap, feet, this eyes looking, whatever. Right. Um, we There will be a new poster that's coming out soon that goes with the whole body listening that says whole body listening can look like, and it has all the many different ways, not all, right. not extensive, but some examples that listening doesn't have to look one way. It looks lots of different ways for lots of different kids. So um, Cass, I hope you can give that poster to your, your <laughs> child's school to say, hey, Look, we can look lots of different ways while we listen. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll try to share that when it comes out. So I'll keep my yeah, eye out. Yeah. Uh, clip charts are uh, mm, bane of my existence. Um, they, I just publicly shaming kids for when they're having a hard time. I mean, it's always the same kids that are clipping up and the same kids that are clipping down. Right, right. And it's like, how many times are we going to do this before we learn? <laughs> like, it's not. We're not doing right. anything but publicly shaming students. Well, I, I guess if you want to do it for all the teachers and staff and they think it's a good idea after that, then, you know, <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe you could do it, right? Examples of, yeah, we did it at our staff meeting and people didn't yeah. like it so much. Yeah. And it's just like, what, what is the purpose here? Are we instructing? If we're just pointing out, yeah. like, you're not doing what I want, that's not instruction. That's not yeah. providing support. And um, I think you also have to consider, like, what are your like things that you're clipping up and clipping down for. Like, are you really going to clip a kid down because they're not sitting crisscross? Is that worth saying like, Ooh, you're going to be on orange now because you're, right. you know, doing this one thing. Um, and like, what does it relate to? Like, what is the, the true goal of it? Is your goal for them to be sitting the certain way or is it to learn the content? So yeah, no, not a, well, not I, I mean, in my mind, it's the goal is to manipulate behavior, right? It's the, yeah. thing, you do the thing you want them to do. Um, yep. that's not okay. Right. I mean, you know, kid, kids can have, I mean, um, kids can have a hundred different ways of sitting. You want a kid to be comfortable. You don't want to tell them exactly how they sit. Maybe that's uncomfortable to them. You know, sometimes I think, uh, expectation, adults expectations, um, need to be checked. I mean, um, you know, my, my son may have been the kid that at story time was running in a circle around everyone else. And, uh, you know, maybe that was disruptive, but the bigger disruption was probably the adults, you know, making a big issue out of it. My son was still listening as he ran in circles, you know, I mean, sometimes people, you know, get on that uh, hill and say, oh, well, this has to happen. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they expect compliance for compliance sake, mm -hmm. uh, rather than again, is this actually getting in the way of, of, you know, what we're trying to accomplish here? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm, yeah, it's, it's tough. And, and the idea, oh gosh, you know, I think, I think the, one of the worst parts about this is if the, the clip charts aren't bad enough and the sitting isn't bad enough, the scouts, the other oh, students, you know, and again, I think about this having an emergent son, you know, I, I remember being in situations where there was always the kid that was um, drawing to my attention, anything my son did that was not typical. Oh gosh, it was the worst, you know, uh, mm -hmm. but it's worse for a kid too. I mean, you know, every moment somebody's Oh, he's not doing this right. He's not doing that right. You know, kids internalize and kids begin to feel like they're a failure, like they can't meet the expectations that are just really sometimes hard for them to even meet. Mm -hmm. So many <laughs> tangential thoughts that are popping into my head. We're having fun. So just throw, throw us your thoughts. Oh, well, I want to talk about the kids that are always on green on those clip charts. Okay. That I also want to talk about um, peer mediated interventions. Okay. And, and, uh, yeah, we're going to, I'm going to start with that. I was, 
my mom is also a behavior specialist. She okay. became a behavior specialist right after me. And so mm-hmm. we, we often call and give each other consults on different things, trying to figure stuff out. She was like, mom, hey. mom can join us for the next event. But she uh, was like, what, what do you think about this like peer mediated intervention? I'm like, mm, I think about it the same way that I think about how parents are not therapists, they're parents mm-hmm. um, and peers are not interventionists, they're, they're mm-hmm. peers. Um, and it's so often like one sided, like it's the, the neurotypical peers that are instructing the neurodivergent mm-hmm. kid mm-hmm. instead of it being a mutual exchange, which mm-hmm. we know from the double empathy problem, it's not a, a neurodivergent problem of communicating. It's a cross communication issue. Neurotypicals struggle to interact with neurodivergent people. Neurodivergent people struggle to interact and socialize in expected ways with like neurotypical people. We just don't mesh very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, yeah, the whole scouting and like, oh, you you be this kid's helper or you watch and make sure these behaviors are happening is uh, terribly frustrating. Um, but I also wanted to touch on I feel like another piece that people don't talk about often, and one of my posts from a while ago has, has recently resurfaced about the kids that are always on green, but mm. they're always on green because they are doing their very best to hold it all together okay. all yeah. day because they are so afraid of being clipped down and they are just mm-hmm. doing their absolute best to hold it together, which means when they get home, they're exhausted. They've run a marathon all day just trying to keep it together because they're told if I do things differently, I get clipped down and I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like we lose those kids so often. Um, and, you know, they, they experience significant burnout, um, lots of anxiety and depression and, and co-occurring mental mm-hmm. health conditions. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And just like because we have these like standards mm-hmm. um, that aren't real. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. Uh, Rebecca just said masking and burnout. And, yep. and certainly that can be, that can be a part of it. I mean, you know, some kids are externalizers, some kids are internalizers. Uh, the externalizers might be acting up, might be getting, you know, clipping up all the time, might be getting in trouble. The internalizers are just, you know, you know, have the, the weight of the world on them uh, might even go into kind of a, a, a productive state of shutting down. I mean, that's not a, a good place to be either. Um, you know, so Anybody that has a classroom right now out there with a uh, clip chart, uh, there is there are plenty of great articles out there on, you know, ditching the clip chart and doing other things. Um, and, and again, you know, I mean, I guess I, guess I, I mean, I could ask you, like, well, what would you recommend instead? But I don't even know the motivation behind having a clip chart. Like you've got to have start out with a valid motivation. And, you know, I, I can't even really think of what the valid motivation is other than. Yeah, I mean, maybe you can help me here. But well, I, I mean, I think it's a it's a shift in the lens of they're not doing what I want. So I have to make them want to do it. Like, so I have to externally make them want to do it more versus they don't want to do what I want. How can I make, how can I help them enjoy this more? So they want to do it. So instead of like, how can I force them to do what I'm telling them? It's like, how can I inspire them to be engaged? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, uh, oh, no, I, I, absolutely. Absolutely. That, that's, that's an interesting way to put it. So what, what's the answer to that? Well, I think the answer to that is is looking at that accessibility piece, that engagement mm-hmm. piece. Like, what what is the barrier that's preventing kids from wanting to engage? Because kids are naturally 
explorative and curious and want to learn. Um, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Maria Montessori's work. And um, I I just think of the exact same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I I was just thinking when one kid said love it, then get their hands on things, get them enjoying things. Like, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, why, you know, why Johnny's not attending to this activity is, is, is it's boring. It's not engaging and it's not, that's not a, Affronted the educator. I'm not trying to say, oh, they're wow. doing a terrible job, but a lot of what we're doing. I remember when my son was in first grade, really struggling, and, and thinking to myself, like, I knew how my son learned, and I knew how how capable he was. And I remember thinking, like, he needs like a, an adventure school, like somewhere where he's really doing things and experiencing things. And you know, um, I think all kids, you know, that Montessori, you know, um, kind of ideology. I think all kids benefit from that kind of approach, but it seems like we keep heading in the wrong direction. We keep heading to meeting academic, uh, you know, kind of arbitrary academic standards to show that, you know, uh, children are passing tests and, um, well, and all of the research shows the more time that's spent in SEL, right. the higher academic progress mm-hmm, kind mm-hmm. of spikes. Uh, it, it's directly related to the progress you're able to make academically mm-hmm. by how you're building these social emotional learning skills. Because then you have all of like mm-hmm. you are more able to learn if you are more well regulated, if you have connected. Well, I mean, and, and, and you know, I, I think about um you know, Bruce Perry, Bruce Perry and kind of the neurosequential model, right? The neurosequential model, you know, it's, it's regulate, relate, reason, right? Mm-hmm. Y- you're not able to reason. You're not able to reach your prefrontal cortex if you're not regulated. You know, you're not able to really successfully reach your prefrontal cortex if you don't feel connected and relating to people. I mean, mm-hmm. that's so critical. And we have that science out there, but uh, we don't seem to be a good, doing a good job of, of bringing it into our classrooms. There's a quote from, I think it's Natalie Turner, but I might be wrong, but stressed, ba- stressed brains can't learn. Right. If you're in a constant state of stress, like you're not taking anything in. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that, um, and, and I, I mean, it's true. I mean, it's not even a matter of belief. It's, you know, if a kid does not feel safe, a kid can't learn. If a teacher doesn't feel safe, a teacher can't teach. So let, let's shift gears for a second, because these are difficult times, Okay. These are probably some of the most challenging time in education that we've seen for decades. Uh, I think on the um, the heels of the pandemic, having, you know, everyone collectively go through this trauma. I mean, honestly, this was a traumatic event for us all to go through, uh, you know, for kids especially. And, and, you know, we're seeing a lot of the effect of that. Uh, on on young teenage kids, you know, a lot of kids that are, are suffering from that, but even missing that critical socialization and other things that were happening. So we knew, and, and probably you knew a couple of years ago that when kids went back to school, things were going to be tough because here they had had these experiences, they had lacked other experiences, and, and we could have predicted that we're going to see an increase in some challenging, you know, behavior. We're going to see an increase in people not feeling safe. Uh, and, and I'm not just talking about the kids. I'm talking also about teachers and staff. Uh, so these are really tough times. And unfortunately, uh, I think those that were kind of, you know, predicting this could happen weren't wrong. Um, and we're seeing this. We're seeing this around the country. And as a result, uh, there are people that are focused on probably the same things that you are in terms of social emotional learning, in terms of, you know, the the trauma informed approaches, in terms of the neuroscience and all of these things. Uh, but then there are people that are looking at the behaviors uh, and thinking that they need to double down on the things that don't work, like, you know, 
suspension, expulsion, you know, all, all these negative things, despite the fact that we've got this body of evidence around the school to prison pipeline and all these other things. We've seen this year uh, a district in Missouri that brought back corporal punishment after having it be gone for 20 years. So these are tough times right now. And and, and I honestly believe that the same solution that's going to help kids is the same solution that's actually going to lead to an increase in teacher satisfaction and increase in uh, or a decrease in teacher turnover. I, I think if we can get the right things in our, our programs, we're going to make a positive difference. But what do you think about all that? How do we, you know, about where we are right now and what we can do to get out of it? I mean, and even social emotional learning. I mean, as you talk about that, there are places across the country um, where social emotional learning has been turned into a bad word, where people have some really um, interesting ideas around what social emotional learning is uh, and are targeting social emotional learning as programs that are trying to, um, oh gosh, I can't even think of the words they use, um, like brainwash kids um, into all sorts of things. So I'll stop because I've said enough and you probably already got five ideas queued up in your mind, but where are we now and how do we get out of it? Uh, um, <laughs> Once you answer that question, we can put it in a book, and you're gonna, you're gonna yeah, you know, yeah, just known all over the solve, world. Solve all of the public education issues, right? Now. That's, that's right. I mean, it's probably not a fair question, but I, I, I so value your perspective on things, and just kind of curious what your perspective is on the problem. Um, I think one of the biggest successes I see in looking at um, different schools and setups, not only in like the schools I'm working with, but like across the country of. Um, when a school leadership team decides that it's a priority, that's when the actual change happens. And that's when schools, I mean, the school that I taught in um, before I I came into this position, um, the administrator decided we're not doing suspensions anymore. We're just not going to do them. It's not going to happen. And, you know, we went from, I I don't know how many we had, but for the last four years I was there, we had zero suspensions, um, which is how all elementary schools should be. There's no... (laughs) Very, very few reasons I would ever say <laughs> that warrant a suspension. Um, but when the, the the leadership team takes that approach, that's how um, teachers then feel supported to make those changes. If it's not coming from a higher level, with if um, kind of your your school leadership is like, you got to get these scores up, we got to do this, got to do that. If they are taking that approach, teachers don't feel like they have the support to prioritize that in their lesson. So they're like, well, they're going to come in. And for the first 15 minutes of my period, we're doing connection activities. We're building our social emotional skills. We are having opportunities to build relationships. Um, and it gets to like, if you don't feel supported by your administration, right? Like it just, it doesn't mm-hmm. work out well. And when, versus when a, a, a school leadership prioritizes that and it's like, okay, like for the first half hour of our day, this is what we're doing. And this is what this looks like. And like, here are the resources. So I think a lot of times it's also teachers are expected to, to, to just like make it up. Like there's no, there, there, there exists curriculums for social emotional learning, of course, but most districts don't buy them. (laughs) Um, And it's really hard if you're a teacher and you're like, well, like, what does that even look like? Even if your school is saying, well, we're going to spend this time on social emotional learning, but they don't give you anything to do for that. And it's like, I don't like, what does that mean? Like, we're going to talk about our feelings. I don't, I don't know. Um, Just out of curiosity, is there a uh, curriculum that you like out there for any of our educators that might be out there that are listening? um, I love the Seabridges curriculum. Um, It's spelled S E A 
uh, Seabridges. Yeah, in fact, somebody just commented on that. Yes. Uh, I'd love to know if McAllister has experience around SEA Bridges uh, via the Bridges Learning System. Yeah. Yeah, um, I love it. I connected with um, their creators and and was able to, to kind of explore their program. And then um, I, I got to observe a, a amazing lesson being taught by um, one of my other district support people uh, where she co-taught uh, or she taught a lesson on comparing and contrasting Seabridges with um, Superflex uh, because the kids had brought up to them. They're like, we really didn't like that because it just told us that everything about us was wrong. Mm. Um, and so they did a compare and contrast about the priorities and the approaches and when it's helpful um, and like what pieces are helpful, what pieces do you think are missing? Uh, and it was just an incredible lesson to listen to these elementary students talking about how um, helpful that like affirming curriculum was for them because it told them that your way is okay and we're all different rather than saying, oh, if you think about things this way, then that's the bad way to think about things. That's the villain that you have to defeat. Um, mm -hmm. so, yeah. Well, yeah, and that was the point Rebecca just brought up that some of the curriculums are actually harmful. Yes. You yeah. know, yeah, yeah, here you go. And I've also explored a little bit the SEE curriculum. It's social, emotional, and ethical, and it's actually a free curriculum and it's elementary through high school. Um, and I really enjoyed what I have seen through that. Um, and it's, it gives like really structured lessons. So if um, teachers are looking at trying to find something to start implementing, it's free. You get free access to it once you do like they're, I don't know, like four hour module or whatever of training of how to use it. So that's mm -hmm. another curriculum I really mm -hmm. recommend. So, so you're talking about the importance of changes at leadership at a leadership level. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, those can happen in a couple of ways. I mean, you know, so I'm, I'm going to ask you from two different perspectives. If you're a teacher working in a system that could be improved, how do you bring your concerns up to the leadership to have them heard? Or have you had experience with, you know, having that kind of bottom up um, change? Um, I think the first kind of step in that is trying to implement as much as you can in mm -hmm. your classroom. And then uh, showing the results. When you're yeah. on your own, but yes, and then showing yeah. the results. And, um, you know, if, if, you know, you're like trying this curriculum and you're like, I I'm doing this, it's going well, I'd really like training on this. Can me and one other teacher go to this training? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and often looking at, um, like, Title I funds or um, any other kind of state-based support funding for PDs, because your schools mm -hmm. actually do have that. You should ask them mm -hmm. <laughs> um, occasionally, uh, but seeing what funds are available for training and just starting with one or two people and kind of like trickling out from there mm -hmm. um, is how I have seen, you know, a, a school go from one teacher is implementing conscious discipline in their classroom to now the entire school is implementing conscious mm -hmm. discipline in their classroom. Mm -hmm. Um, and how that like kind of transformation can happen, but it kind of starts with you implementing and then you like sharing all those pieces. Yeah, I, I love that. And, 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 you know, I think as an educator, I'm sure it can get really uh, frustrating and seem overwhelming to like change a system, but, you know, just beginning by changing what you're doing in your classroom can. And, and, you know, I've, I've worked with a lot of educators who have done that and, and have been able to influence change. I've worked with others who have, have done that and created positive change in their classroom, only to have others not value and appreciate what they do. What What about the parents? I mean, we have uh, parents, we have self-advocates and others uh, that will go to a board meeting and, and speak up. Uh, if you if you as an educator, uh, you know, 
if there was something that could help you by a parent going to a board meeting and speaking up, what would you ask them to talk about? I mean, what might a parent do? I mean, because, you know, we, we do. We, we have now, mind you, uh, some of these board meetings are not uh, as productive as others. Uh, mm-hmm. I saw a video from one uh, in, in North Carolina, actually, just yesterday that was rather explosive. But there are some parents out there. They're going to board meetings and they're advocating for positive changes. Um, you know, in my case, in my, my son's school district, we were able to get the policy changed around seclusion and restraint by working through the board. So the board can have some influence. Any, anything there in terms of like, how can, how can parents and teachers, I mean, we should not be on the other side. Uh, you know, we, we should not be, we should be working together, right? How do we right. collaborate to, you know, a well-supported teacher is going to be much better equipped to support our kids. Um, any thoughts? Um, I think, uh, on, you know, on the whole piece, like just thinking about like, okay, we really want to eliminate restraint and seclusion. Part of that also comes with how do we provide the resources of the, right. the what else, right? Like you talked about of like, if not ABA, then what? Um, and so I think kind of advocating for those pieces as like a joint force of we don't need this. We want to remove this because it's harmful. But like, here's what will help with the mm-hmm. problem that you're seeing that you're tr- trying to use this as a solution. You're trying to use restraint and seclusion as a solution to this this is what would be helpful. Let's put these two pieces together. Let's take this out. Let's put this in. Um, Mm -hmm. Because I think a lot of times uh, teachers feel like things are taken away and nothing's put in in their place. Right, right, Um, right, right. No, no, I hear you. And and I think that's critical. I mean, it's part of the work we do around restraint and seclusion, but I think even just more generally, anytime that parents and teachers can support each other, um, it's a good thing. And, you know, there are opportunities for parents to go to board meetings and share concerns. And, you know, there's a lot of movement right now around the country with uh, some parents organizing and, and sharing concerns that might not align with with everyone, uh, whether it's about, you know, banning books or getting rid of SEL programs. So, uh, you know, I think given given what we know about some of these programs, some of these social emotional learning programs and their value, we need people out there advocating for good programs uh, and good support for kids. So uh, just just kind of thinking out loud about how how we can collaborate together. I think anytime we can get, you know, educators and and parents and families together, I think it's a positive, mm-hmm. um, positive change. So we, we have um, gone about to the end of our time here today. And, uh, you know, knowing what you shared with me about uh, time, uh, you know, time blindness, I, I want to be I want to be make sure, making sure that I'm, I'm uh, responsible here. And, and keep us to what I promised um, in terms of our time. But this has been a really uh, fantastic conversation. We've had a lot of, I mean, more, far more comments than uh, I was able to get to in our conversation. Um, you know, the things that you're doing, the work that you're doing is, is really, uh, I think, making a positive difference. The shift that's happening, and it's people like you that are, I think, really helping to lead some of that shift is so critical in, in um, you know, supporting individuals that have not been well supported in a lot of our our systems so you know i'm really appreciative for all that you're doing out there and and the change that you're bringing about um do you do any uh consulting with other school districts or uh training or other things that people might be interested in that you know kind of want more of this yeah so i do um provide consultation and training on kind of a a case-by-case basis Mm -hmm. um sometimes it's a it's a good fit and sometimes it's not Um, so yeah, reaching out to me, um, usually through Instagram and Facebook is actually the most, the easiest way to get to me. Um, I, I do have an email, but it, like, it gets checked periodically. So I I usually keep up with messages more and then, you know, I can like come back to them because they don't build up as quickly. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, no, I, I hear you. And uh, Sandra, who who has had a couple comments here, said, yes, can we have her come to New Hanover County Schools? <laughs> Sandra, I'd love to come to New Hanover. My grandma lives in Wrightsville. <laughs> New, New Hanover needs some help. I don't know if you've watched the the news around New Hanover, but there's been a lot of things going on for some time. Uh, they, they've been... Uh, a lot of issues around restraint seclusion. Recently, it was what a five or six year old that was put in handcuffs at a, a New Hanover County School. Um, yeah, there, there's a lot going on there for sure. Um, but th this has been a really great conversation. And I definitely want to encourage people to reach out to you, to, to follow you on, on Instagram and Facebook. Um, and certainly want to have you back as well when the book comes out. So that's really exciting. Any final words you want to leave people with? Any final thoughts that you have um, for today? That feels like a lot of pressure. <laughs> oh, I don't feel pressured. Just, you know, I mean, I asked you to solve the problem in, in our schools today. How much more pressure could there be? Well, <laughs> um, so don't, don't feel any pressure. I just, you know, really value um, the, the lens that you're using um, and, and the work that you're doing. And, you know, even, I mean, the, the example of the Larry, uh, you know, poster is a really great one. When you take something that's broken, that's harmful, um, you know, to be able to come in and, and bring about a positive change is really meaningful to, to our kids and our educators and our families. So uh, the work you're doing is really critical. Thanks. I didn't, I didn't mention, and I should say, um, the, the Larry poster is free um, at everydayregulation.com for anybody who wants to download it. You can send it to your local printer to get it printed, blown up. We also do offer like a printed thing, but it's like, it's pretty much six or a half dozen at the cost wise of whether you order it or you send it to a local printer. So if you want to gift those to any of the teachers in your life, uh, I totally recommend it. It's free. Download it. Use it. Yeah, that, that, that's great advice. You know, we always recommend to our audience, you know, if you're an educator, you know, there are things that you can share with the parents. If you're a parent, share these things with your educators. Um, and again, I think, you know, one, one of the words of wisdom that you had is like, you know, um, make a difference for your classroom, right? You know, start, start with what you have influence over, make a difference there. And, you know, I mean, it sounds like that's been kind of the story of your career is like starting off and making the difference where you can. And, and that's, expanding to a bigger and bigger audience. So thank you so much for joining us today. I'm going to go ahead and wrap up our, our broadcast here, but really greatly appreciate it. Thank everybody uh, that was on with us. We had a good, good group here, um, very active. And I'm sorry, I didn't get to all the comments and questions, uh, but please come back. And if you have others, you know, don't hesitate to reach out. Uh, of course, we've shared McAllister's information as well, the neurodivergent teacher. Thank you so much. And we'll see everybody again next time. Thanks, Thanks everyone. Bye-bye.